this review, we attempt to piece together comprehensive molecular histories of the adaptation of varilla virus, HIV-1M, SARS, H1N1-SIV, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and SARS-CoV-2 to the human host. That's the ambitious and important goal of a recently published EMBO Reports review by Nash Rockman, Yuri Wolf, and Eugene Koonin. Dr. Koonin is a leader in the fields of computational biology and genomics. We discussed the paper entitled Molecular Adaptations During Viroepidemics with Dr. Koonin and Nash Rockman, a postdoc in his lab at the National Center for Biotechnology Information at the NIH's National Library of Medicine. We also discussed virology, pandemics, and Rockman et al.'s paper with virologist Vince Racanello of Columbia University. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. In the review, Conan and his co-authors point to 1977 as a pivotal year for both genomics, with the publication of Frederick Sanger's method for DNA sequencing, and for virology, with the last documented case of naturally occurring smallpox in Somalia. Dr. Koonin looked back at that time. It all started with the momentous paper of uh, that Fred Sanger and his collaborator, already a Nobel Prize winner for protein sequencing at the time, published in PNAS in 1977, uh, which reported a new and highly efficient method for DNA sequencing. Actually, for two papers that appeared in the same issue of PNAS, more or less back to death, by uh, Wally Gilbert and Sanger, and at the same uh, at that time uh, they seemed equally important. But later on, it became clear that the Sanger method was actually the main thing, and it revolutionized DNA sequencing, making it more efficient by orders of magnitude. Of course, uh, by today's uh, standards, this is still a very primitive technique, uh, but this was the foundation of everything. And in that paper, Sanger and colleagues uh, reported the sequence of about 4 kb uh, genome of the uh, model virus 5x174 bacterial single-stranded DNA in a bacteria phase. And that was the first efficiently published genome of any variety of biological entity, uh, in virus or cellular life form. A year before that, Walter Pierce and others published a slightly shorter sequence of an RNA bacterial phage MS2 in Nature in a long paper on which they have worked for about a decade with incredible investment of labor. And then a year after that, uh, Sanger's paper appeared where this was done just as an ex uh, something bigger was done just as an exercise. Uh, and the rest is history, so to speak. The real uh, genomics, I would say, started at that point. And importantly, for about 15 years, the only complete, or even more, nearly 20, the only available complete genomes of uh, genomes of viruses of different kinds of increasing size uh, for, from the simplest like 5x174 or uh, two complex ones like vaccinia viruses, etc. And so it was the golden age of uh, uh, virus genomics in the sense that this is we, I mean, we as the community, but also we personally, we had the opportunity uh, to develop methodologies and take advantage of the key approach of um, uh, comparative uh, genomics, understanding that for the first time, the enormous advantages that evolutionary approach comparative genomics gives us. Although human coronaviruses were first described in the 60s and were known to be the culprits behind a significant fraction of cases of the common cold, the word coronavirus probably became familiar to most people during the SARS outbreak of 2003 two years after the publication of the first draft of the human genome. Dr. Nash Rockman gave us his view of how genomics has changed since then. Uh, I think that the bigger difference between the SARS sequence availability and SARS-CoV-2 availability uh, was from a technology standpoint is that the cost is much lower today than it was then. I think that even if the it was no slower to acquire the same volume of data today as it was um, back in the original SARS outbreak that we would have received uh, many more sequences because, again, because the cost was much lower. And this is something that's particularly relevant for 
uh, epidemiology because you often have outbreaks in places that are distant from major sequencing centers and distant from major uh, academic institutions that might not have the funding, the same amount of funding available uh, to to engage in the same study that you would if the original outbreak was in a major academic center. Uh, however, the, there's also an epidemiological reason that there are many more sequences for SARS-CoV-2 today than there were for SARS or ever were collected for SARS. And this is because, of course, SARS was rapidly contained. And there are some socioeconomic reasons for why that happened. And there are also some biological reasons, some, some features of the viral biology that made SARS, the original SARS virus, much more containable than the novel SARS-CoV-2. So I would say that, you know, the, to restate, the sequencing speed, probably not a big impact. The sequencing cost, a more substantial impact, probably the most impactful thing was the nature of the virus biology itself and how we as a society interpreted the best way to approach either containing or living with the, the spread of that virus. Viral evolution throws many curveballs. The Delta variant was first detected in India at the end of the pandemic's first year. It swept the globe in 2021, driving a new, deadly wave. Many, if not most experts at the time, bet on the next significant variant or variants arising from the Delta lineage. Of course, that is not what happened with the emergence of Omicron. So this is, and this is something we talk about at the, in the concluding remarks, the potential evolutionary trajectories sustained by a chain of acute infections. So what can happen? to the virus when you're circulating in the, the general global population that gets sick for a week, two weeks at a time. Uh, this is substantially different and substantially reduced uh, relative to the evolutionary landscape that's available to a virus evolving in a, an immunocompromised uh, host or generally a, an, you know, an immunodivergent reservoir population. So it could be an immunocompromised human host, it could be uh, an, an animal host, it could be a few different things. And the primary reason for this is that there's intense selective pressures for the maintenance of high levels of infectivity when the, the virus is circulating in the general population. So it's very difficult, it's highly unlikely, that a mutation which will even even I'm sorry, not substantially, even uh, reduce just a little bit the infectivity is going to become fixed in a in a large portion of the the the, the circulating virus, and this is, makes sense, you know, naively. But the consequence that's maybe a little bit more surprising is that there are places in the evolutionary landscape that the virus will never reach by only sampling this global uh, mixed population uh, of representative acute infections. But if you can sort of teleport to this other part of the uh, phase space, you can either think about it as this genomic landscape or as a viral life history characteristic phase space, which is mapped to some complex function of genomic uh, characteristics, then you'll find that this virus that's represented in this part of the phase space is in fact much fitter than the virus that uh, is currently circulating. And one way to teleport, you know, from one place to another is through an accumulation of many neutral or weakly deleterious mutations, which through uh, an epistatic landscape can result in effects which are not additive and uh, uh, more than compensate for the deleterious effects of the intermediate accumulation of these neutral or, or weakly deleterious mutations. And so this is exactly what we saw uh, with the case of Omicron, where there is a lot of evidence that suggests that this strain emerged from some immunoprivileged environment, either an immunocompromised host or some uh, animal host reservoir that has different uh, characteristics than, than the human hosts do. And this allowed the virus to accumulate uh, a litany of mutations, which were unlikely to be observed through acute, effect, acute infections alone, but in concert uh, result in a virus which is very well suited to uh, transmission 
in the current uh, global uh, environment that's supported by a list of acute infections. Now, it's also important to remember, and this may or may not be any different uh, if you had rolled back the clock a year or so, but part of the reason that Omicron is so highly infectious today is that it's also highly immune evasive. Now, I also want to be very clear that it's immune evasive to the extent that it is likely to infect a host who has been vaccinated or who's required a previous infection. It's unlikely to send a host to um, you know, an ICU after a prior infection or vaccination. So these are two very different things. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll say for the sake of this discussion that it's, it's highly immunoevasive. And so this makes it particularly fit in a population of hosts which are largely no longer naive, either vaccinated or had been, uh, or had been um, uh, subject to a prior infection. And so would Omicron have emerged and displaced Delta in a landscape where the, the whole population was naive? It is not entirely clear. I think it's probably still would because it's still highly transmissible, but it's not entirely clear. And um, the, the, the point is that this, the, this evolution in these other immunolandscapes and these other immunocompromised hosts or animal host reservoirs is what enabled, like what I'm, I'm saying, this is this teleportation from one place to another. So, and, and, and it's also, there are things I think we got lucky with because when you have longitudinal evolution in a single host, um, it may become much more important, uh, the game of cat and mouse with the cellular immune system, even in an immunocompromised host, than just evading antibody immunity to jump from host to host. And, and then there are things to do with MHC and so forth that make it less likely that you have kind of a pan-everybody um, escape variant, but it's still quite quite worrisome. Um, coming back to, to, this, to, to your review, um, so there is a part where I think we'll be, it will be very familiar to our, to our listeners in, in, in the section dealing with point mutations and how the, the spike protein evolved and so on. But there's also a very, very interesting section, which not just in, in, in SARS-CoV-2 or, or viral uh, evolution, but in evolution in general, is always uh, more of an, uh, of, of, uh, an, an incognito in terms of trying to understand what's going on, which is major genome remodeling. Right? Um, and maybe we'll go back to Dr. Kunin to discuss a little bit um, this aspect of genome remodeling in, in, in the evolution of pathogens and, and, uh, new, and, and new pathogens in particular. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, please to do. Indeed, I think that conclusions that, uh, from the analysis of, of the genomes of pathogenic viruses and the changes that occur associated with the emergence of, of these uh, human epidemic viruses are, in a sense, unexpected and counterintuitive. Because, actually, to, to myself, because when you think about the evolution of pathogenicity, or at least used to say, you would Think about some gain of function. Consider pathogenicity a, a function, a trait that might be adaptive for the virus, and so something would have been acquired to become a pathogen. And this is not necessarily completely false. Say in bacteria, we know many examples that toxins are acquired, the plasmids, etc., uh, making pathogens. Uh, but actually, when you think more generally, just slightly deeper. Uh, about the evolution of pathogens and pathogenic viruses in particular, you realize that pathogenicity itself is not something the virus would be selected. Now, the virus is selected for uh, maximum pro uh, total reproduction, total, total productivity, which is linked to maximum transmissivity. These are the selected factors. And those uh, selected factors are uh, actually often associated with the virus becoming milder rather than more severe and the simplification of the virus interaction with the host rather than acquisition of additional mechanisms. And the, uh, uh, which, which uh, incidentally also uh, very well may be associated uh, with the narrowing of the host range with um, the virus becoming special. And this is uh, what we observe across um, the landscape of the virus world, of the world of pathogenic viruses, uh, from the very um, large and complex viruses, such as pox viruses, virus, smallpox, down to, um, more surprisingly, RNA viruses with relatively small genomes, such as 
that the coronaviruses and uh, HIV, which all um, in their evolution and in their adaptation to a new host, in particular, human host, show the trend of losing genes uh, that are involved in virus-host interaction, making the virus uh, more uh, efficient, make, make, making the virus, sorry, perhaps less efficient in the um, interaction with the host, uh, and, and, and less versatile. Um, a good example in SARS-CoV-2 is so-called ORC8, uh, an accessory gene, uh, which is quite interesting, uh, which has a highly diverged sequence. At the first glance, looking like nothing, but uh, after a more careful analysis, uh, shown to encode uh, a particular kind of immunoglobulin domains, which uh, interact with the major system compatibility complex and affect uh, host uh, immunity, cellular immunity. Uh, and at first, uh, this finding would suggest that this is something that would be important in the course of the pandemic. And personally, I, I even thought that myself, you know, in the beginning that this was observed. Uh, but this is not the case. This is not at all important in the course of the pandemic, uh, and viral doesn't become maladopted to human population by losing uh, these genes. Apparently, it was important for the regulation of infection in animal host. Much, much more of that is seen in the uh, evolution of uh, large viruses, such as smallpox, for instance, which is the simplest and the smallest among the known orthopox viruses, and yet crucial uh, human uh, pathogen, uh, for which, however, no, no other host has ever been um, uh, identified, fortunately. Uh, so this, um, there is this more or less pervasive trend of reduct uh, reductive uh, evolution of virus genomes, which I think has not been uh, foreseen before uh, in, um, the uh, recent advances of virus So this this I found a, a very a very fascinating aspect of, of of your work this this prominence of gene loss and especially this um, this aspect of narrowing the host range uh, and then losing genes. If you um, do, do you think in that case the selection um, the selection pressure is just economics? I mean, you need a smaller toolkit for uh, for just one or two hosts, especially when there are suddenly seven billion of, of a large mammal uh, running around with uh, with global travel and uh, added in the mix, or or do you think there's something else at play, like reduced antigenicity with less proteins or something something similar? Yes, yeah, so I think we see both. Uh, in the case of orthopox virus evolution, I think the predominant view is that there's a process of pseudogenization so that a particular protein is only important for antagonizing a host-specific viral defense system. And so this protein can then, in another host, like humans, accumulate mutations, including truncations, uh, nonsense substitutions or, or large deletions, and eventually it will lose its function. And then as you say, sort of the economy of replication will then weakly uh, select for the removal of this gene entirely because you'll have less genome to copy. Um, but there's another uh, trend that we, that's also observed, and this has been observed, I think, of, of the viruses that we review most prominently in influenza, that there are some accessory genes which have virulence factors potent virulence factors, and there is a um, very strong trend of the deletion or truncation of these accessory genes to remove these virulence factors, um, which might come at the cost of reduced transmissibility, which is sometimes shown in model systems, but it also, as, as Eugene mentioned uh, previously, it simplifies the host-virus relationship. It might change the duration of immunity for the host, and it also changes the, the way that the host surveys and respond socially to the virus. And when we talk about the way that the host responds socially to the virus, you know, we're talking about things like social distancing and the kinds of non-pharmaceutical interventions that we as, as a human society put into place. But it's important to realize, especially from an evolutionary lens, that these kinds of host behaviors are broadly observed. They're observed, I think, as was famously highlighted last year uh, in, in bee communities for uh, fungal infections. 
they're observed even to some extent, possibly among uh, prokaryotes. So the idea that uh, the virus wants to simplify its relationship with its host, right, it really means in the in the most literal sense relationship in terms of how it mediates the host, how the host mediates their own behavior uh, in the advent of introduction to to an advent of a pathogen introduction. Yeah, so then, so this idea that uh, some of these uh, accessory proteins are, are reduced, are truncated or removed uh, in, in influenza is because it, it's decreasing the, the cost to the host for infection, decreasing the presence of these virulence residues. And this is also more weakly observed in beta coronaviruses as well. So there is some uh, correlation between the, both the uh, reduced rate of transmissibility slightly and uh, more substantially reduced mortality. Uh, I think uh, in MERS, this has been most strongly shown, uh, but also to some degree in, in SARS and SARS-CoV-2 with the truncations in these accessory proteins. Um, mortality stats, I think, may be only demonstrated for MERS, but more weakly, uh, there's been some suggestion that virulence is reduced as a consequence of these accessory deletions in, in the Sarpico lineages. One thing that everybody was worried about before COVID-19, of course, was what was going to happen with the, um, with the Ebola outbreak that had been flaring up and dying down and flaring up and dying down um, in, in, uh, in Central and, and West Africa for a while in the 2010s. And that, of course, is temporarily on hold as a concern. But in, your, in the section where you discuss Ebola, um, you refer to the end of evolutionary stasis, of the evolutionary stasis period. Um, what, what do you mean by that, Dr. Kunin? What we mean by that is that a lot of evolution is of any, any species, any organism, is spent in the state of equilibrium in the state of stasis, which as uh, yes, from the term itself, means uh, that not much is changing. The virus is circulating, uh, if you are talking about viruses, uh, viruses circulating, being endemic in some population and not uh, reaching far. But then some combination of mutational events subject to selection uh, and ecological changes interrupt the phase of stasis and uh, trigger a different type of dynamics. I, I want to come back to some of the questions you pose as, as open questions, in particular um, the last one, since you also discuss a lot uh, hosts, and there's a section that I hope people read about bats and, and, and bat immunity. But the last question in, in your need for answers box is, uh, so I'll just read it directly, how can we effectively explore viromes of non-human primate of non-human species? Excuse me, to reveal adaptations acquired in intermediate hosts, which are essential for human transmission. Do would either of you care to venture uh, uh, how to uh, how to start uh, to answer that question? Yes, I will say a few words, and then maybe Nash will, will add. First of all, in somewhat general terms, I think it's enormously important. Uh, to study animal reservoirs and reproduction of these human pathogenic viruses and viruses that may become pathogenic for humans in animal reservoirs. Secondly, uh, it's also enormously difficult and just outright costly. For instance, we are now involved in the very interesting to me study of the evolution of SARS-CoV-2 uh, in wild-tailed deer. Uh, which has become rather, infection of wild tail deer uh, has become rather widespread in different places in the United States, and I'm sure vastly underappreciated, because despite uh, the considerable funding and incentive um, that are available now during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, still the technical difficulties of collecting these samples are still quite prohibitive. And that's wild tail deer that is relatively simple. In order to study bats, which, which is both enormously uh, important and enormously biologically interesting, because there some, seems to be something special about the immune system that makes them the sole reservoir for various kinds of viruses, coronaviruses in particular. But the comprehensive study there is uh, tremendously difficult, complicated, costly, and certainly will be long. Term. I, I think inherently optimistic, I hope we will get there, 
but it will take years and years and hours and hours. And maybe I will pass that to next because it's a big question. There's much to say about. Yeah, I think, I think Eugene has said the most important uh, practical considerations. Um, you know, in brief, you can't predict, like the goal is to predict uh, that a virus has epidemic potential before it, it infects a significant number of, of human hosts to the extent that it's impossible to contain, right? And ideally, you would, you would try to make sure that you surveil these viruses before uh, they infect even the first human host. Uh, and doing that is currently, as Eugene um, said, it's not possible because the, it's easy to say, as I myself have thought at, at some moments, that if we have millions and millions of SARS-CoV-2 sequences, why don't we have, you know, 10,000 sequences of a couple of related bat coronaviruses? Uh, but the, the truth is that the cost, as we discussed at the beginning of the, the discussion, uh, the cost per sequence uh, isolated from a from human being is now very cheap because the bottleneck was the cost associated with uh, sequencing itself, not with sample collection. Sample collection is is very easy, but the cost associated with sample collection among diverse hosts is is another story entirely. Uh, so that's that's one thing. And then the other practical consideration is that to some extent you have to know what you're looking for to be able to have the rapid uh, assessment of uh, viral diversity that you have in the case of when the reference genome is known. If the reference genome isn't known, then you're in the, the domain of uh, metagenomics, which has a, a whole host of other technical considerations uh, on the analytical side. Um, another thing I, want to, I thought to comment on on the analytical side is that um, not only does, oh, oh, because you had asked about um, sort of technical changes that could differentiate between the SARS epidemic and the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, or pandemic and the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And one thing that hasn't changed, and indeed it, it cannot change until more diverse data is collected on uh, non-human viruses, uh, is that it's impossible to infer selective pressures beyond some evolutionary depth. At least nobody has any idea how to do it. Uh, the very simplest um, consequence of this is like, uh, if, you, if you reconstruct an evolutionary tree and you have very long internal branches, you're connecting uh, diverse uh, clades to some shared common ancestor, the number of substitutions along those deep internal branches will be very large. And the probability that you'll have more than one substitution in any given site especially a synonymous substitution in a given site, uh, will be high. And that's called you know, synonymous saturation. And so the, the, there's a problem with inferring what happened between these deeply related clades. And without knowing what happened, without knowing what the selective pressures were, it's very difficult to map uh, genotype to function, right? So mutations that were acquired uh, or predicted to have been acquired in very deep nodes, which, by the way, in another technical level, is very difficult to predict with, with high certainty what mutations were actually acquired at which node. But let's say you have some predicted mutation acquired at some node, some you know last common ancestor between some diverse pair of viruses. You don't know whether this was functional or not because it's very difficult for you to predict what the selective pressures were in that environment when that mutation was acquired. Um, and and there's a practical example of this in. Uh, not exactly the same flavor, but what we talk we discuss uh, about uh, Zika virus. Zika virus has acquired many uh, mutations, which over the course of the initial epidemiological uh, review and and uh, phylogenomic review were presumed to have some substantial functional impact, but later were found to be mostly passenger mutations associated with population bottlenecks. So it's at every level it's it's very difficult to um, assess function from uh, from a genomic feature without some greater understanding of what the selective environment was like at that point. And so because the sampling of human viruses is necessarily reduced by the fact that they are human viruses, the intermediate points that you can map towards, if you go back, you know, up the evolutionary tree, 
are too few to make meaningful assessments about uh, the functional impact of deeply uh, inherited mutations. If you are able to find uh, diverse nearby viruses that infect other hosts, you might be able to work at a shallower evolutionary depth where you might be able to make these kinds of functional assessments. And this is demonstrated visually in, in the first figure of the review, where you notice that we have all these arrows that represent the major events in, in genomic evolution of these epidemic viruses, and there's these white uh, patches of where information is important information is likely missing. And at the point of zoonosis, the most critical event, right, uh, it's almost always missing because we don't have sequences from intermediate hosts or we don't have enough sequences from intermediate hosts to discern exactly what mutations were connected to these selective pressures to uh, promote a cross-species transfer event. We, we do have a, a, an interesting maybe opportunity in that sense in, in, these, in these events where we know that it's being established in a, where we are the intermediate hosts, like for example, for deer. Right where we see these explosive new, um, I think they're the, the the most successful example in terms of colonization of a species where it, it looks like humans. It's I think it's pretty clear that we gave the deer um, SARS-CoV-2, and it's doing really well in, in in the natural populations. And there, of course, that's evolution in a new host. But just in terms of the basic science, that's sort of an interesting opportunity, you know, because it's a timed introduction and, and we know what the dominant circuit. Of course, it could always be a rare local subvariant from a, a human individual or, or local population that, that got to the, uh, to the animal reservoir, but it's happened in multiple different places as well, right? So at least in the U.S. and, and in, I think in, in some European locations, there are big... Oh, sorry, that, was, um, that wasn't really a question. <laughs> Just let me get back on track. Oh, well, but if, since you brought it up, I, I, there, I, this is another comment I think that's worth adding, which is that this, again, highlights the fact that what, what I was just trying to say anyway, is that, uh, you know, the selective environment, which may be independent of the host, right, impacts the kinds of mutations that are acquired. So it goes both ways. To infer function, you have to know something about the selective environment, and the selective environment obviously impacts the kinds of functional change that, that will be uh, observed, right? And so we, we do have this um, opportunity to see if not what were the key mutations which emerged right before zoonosis. What are the key mutations which obser were observed right after uh, reverse zoonosis from humans to other hosts? Uh, and can we, right now, I don't think there's enough evidence to suggest that particular subvariants within the human population are more or less likely to uh, engage in reverse zoonosis to specific host, uh, uh, alternative hosts. But we have seen, uh, to a limited degree, repeat events which emerged, so repeat mutations which emerged in alternative hosts, and I think this was most robustly demonstrated in mink populations, actually that there are some same mutations that emerge in the spike protein in the human population, and they also emerged in the mink population after the, the virus was introduced there. And so this the immediate question that this raises, right, when you see the virus doing the same thing, multiple hosts, right, is to say, well, is this because mink are much closely related, much more closely related to humans than, than the, the, whatever the ancestral host was? Or does it have something to do with uh, selective pressures in the mink community, which or mink environment, uh, which are more like the selective pressures in the human uh, global community than they were in some uh, ancestral host. And so to say one more thing on this topic, this relates back to what you were asking about Ebola, about the end of evolutionary stasis, that uh, it appears that the Ebola variant, so each Ebola outbreak is, is predicted to be the result of an independent zoonotic event. And the, it's additionally predicted that there's been minimal evolutionary change between uh, events. And so, well, that's not quite right, but the evolutionary rate is reduced between events versus uh, within an epidemic. And the, the, the one interpretation of this is that the virus within its host reservoir, whatever it is, um, likely involves uh, back transmission as well. Whatever it is, um, it is a, such a different population structure that the, the number of 
of infections and the the transmission chain within those alternative hosts are so so disparate, so distinct from what you observe in the human population that adaptive evolution isn't sustained. And so there's the opportunity that's presented to find uh, mutations which are observed in alternative hosts from reverse zoonosis are exactly that, to find these conserved trends which are indicative not in a host-specific way, but in a selective pressure specific way. What kinds of things are more likely to emerge in different selective pressures for the same virus or closely related viruses, even when the molecular biology of specific host receptors may differ? Vincent Racanello is Higgins Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Columbia University in New York. Dr. Racanello is a pioneer of molecular virology. As a postdoc with David Baltimore, he cloned and sequenced the poliovirus genome in 1981, and later his own group identified the cellular receptor for poliovirus. Dr. Racanello is also the host of the popular This Week in Virology podcast. In the early 80s, you sequenced the, um, the poliovirus genome with, with David Baltimore. So... Um, I had a couple questions on, on that. One, I'm curious at the time why you went with Maxim Gilbert sequencing when you when you approached the problem back then. <laughs> it's so funny you ask because it was early days of sequencing. You know, it took me a year to do that genome sequence, 7,440 bases. And um, nowadays it would take a half hour. But why we picked Maxim and Gilbert, um, I actually don't know because Sanger was also being used uh, at the time. Um, and so I think the, the main issue was that um, for Sanger sequencing, you need primers. I guess you could use the, uh, the, the vector primers to do that so that you would have to clone pieces of the genome into a vector and then sequence from the vectors. So we just decided we had the, the entire poliovirus genome as a double-stranded DNA. And so we just cut it into pieces with restriction enzymes and labeled the ends and, do, and did the Maxim and Gilbert. We just, I guess we just decided that we would be a little more straightforward than cloning you know, many, many dozens of pieces uh, into a vector. Did you, did you have a specific question at the time, or, or was the goal simply to generate um, a full uh, genome of a human pathogen? which, of course, back then was no small feat. Right. So at the time, there was only uh, a bacteriophage uh, genome sequence of a virus, right? So it's really the first uh, animal virus genome sequence. So, of, of course, we wanted to, to see that, but no one really knew how the genome was expressed. There was a, an idea that it was produced as a polyprotein, so the RNA would get into a cell it would be translated into one long protein and then processed by proteases. Well, no one knew what the proteases looked like. No one knew what the individual proteins were, uh, how the translation would begin. So we really did want to address those questions in addition to just having the genome of a, of a human pathogen. Yeah. If, if we take a, a, a wide view here, of what can be learned simply from a viral sequence of a new pathogen, what could be learned in, in 1981 or a new sequence of an old pathogen, versus what we would learn now immediately from, from a viral sequence. Are there, anything that, are there any characteristics that you say that you would say would be immediately apparent or become interesting or become understood about viral pathogenicity now versus back then mm -hmm. simply from the sequence? I think that's a good point because when we did the polio sequence, uh, there was there was hardly any other sequences known. There was nothing really to compare to, and so, but that was an era where you worked largely on one virus. So I worked on polio virus for most of my career. We had one or three polio virus isolate sequences eventually, and and that's what you had. And that was the limitation of the technology, the sequencing technology that did not permit you to have thousands and thousands of sequences. And in fact, computational uh, biology was not developed sufficiently to be able to compare so many different sequences. So today, as you know, you can do many, many, many thousands, tens of thousands of sequences globally, uh, and you could do it quickly, and you have the power to analyze them. And you can immediately learn 
for example, transmission patterns of viruses, how viruses evolve, how, how they are related to one another. We have reorganized the entire viral taxonomy based on genome sequences. We used to classify viruses based on properties, physical properties, serological properties, the kinds of diseases they caused. A lot of that has been overturned by the genome sequence. All you need now is a genome sequence and you can classify a virus. And as I say, we have reclassified. So for example, the viruses I work with, the coronavirus family, uh, we used to have an enterovirus genus and a rhinovirus genus. The genome sequences revealed that they're very similar. So now they're in the same genus. So really a great deal of incredible information you can discern. Now, if you, to discern biological properties, well, that's still a challenge. You can look at a virus and say where it should be classified, uh, wh whether antibodies to another virus might might neutralize it or not. Even that's a challenge. But to learn anything about the biology is still very difficult. Here's how Kunin, Rockman, and Wolf start their EMBO Reports article. The fall of 1977 was a pivotal season for virology. In October, members of the World Health Organization eradication team identified the final naturally acquired smallpox infection, marking the end to endemicity of the most devastating viral pathogen in recorded human history. In our era, uh, somehow endemicity has been uh, has become for some people synonymous with benign, and and that has been uh, part of the discussion around. <clears throat> SARS-CoV-2, when we reach the endemic period, we can all go to a basement disco club and breathe on each other and everything will be great. <laughs> um, and, and here, uh, unequivocally, we have this devastating pathogen, which they refer to as, as endemic. Uh, even, and uh, I, I was wondering if we could get your take on, this, on, this, on, on what endemicity actually means and what it means for the current pandemic or what it could mean for the current pandemic. Well, endemicity simply means that the, the pathogen is always present or continuously present. And so uh, it, it has no implications for um, pathogenicity or virulence, whatever. Uh, an endemic pathogen is present. It, you may not always have an outbreak. There will always be cases because the virus is always around. It doesn't disappear. The only way it disappears is if you eradicate it as we did uh, for smallpox, but uh, you know, poliovirus uh, is uh, is no longer endemic in most countries because it's not present, but it still is endemic in some because it continues to circulate. It doesn't always cause paralysis, but it's there. And if someone's not immunized, then it will cause a disease. And so, the idea of SARS-CoV-2 becoming endemic, all that means is that we enter a period where it's no longer a pandemic, which means it's no longer uh, a global concern of many, many different countries, but the virus is still present. It is circulating, it is infecting people, and it's going to cause uh, outbreaks. But those outbreaks could be uh, as severe as some of the uh, ones we saw early in the pandemic. So that's that's the key to endemicity. And I don't know where this idea came from that it meant mild. But, you know, as as with many other issues during the pandemic, a lot of misinformation gets propagated. And unfortunately, that's one of them. One thing that's that's very salient in this in this review is the discrepancy. Uh, well, there are several discrepancies. One, of course, is just in the volume of information we have now that the entire world is sequencing um, the same virus um, at a very high rate. But also um, throughout uh, the comparative uh, approach here to, to these different um, uh, pandemic viruses is the discrepancy between our understanding of the cell surface uh, protein components uh, of, of, viral, of the virus and its role in entry and how that may or may not affect uh, crossing species and so forth. And even for older, more established viruses, we often find in the text that the role of the intro of of the non-surface protein of the virus are are still very much unknown. Um, uh, and I was wondering if we zoom out from the spike and, and from entry receptors, and of course you uh, you worked also on this in in, in polio virus, uh, if there are particular um, interest components of the intracellular cycle. 
that stand out using this uh, comparative approach as, as important targets or important uh, pathways to, to, to keep an eye on as far as emerging new pathogens? Well, that's a good point because, as you say, uh, <laughs> people seem to think that all, ma all that matters is a receptor and then a virus gets in and, and reproduces anywhere, right? So if a species has a receptor, it can be infected. If it doesn't, it won't be. And it's absolutely not that simple. Once a virus enters a cell, it needs to be compatible with much of the cellular machinery. And for RNA viruses, it includes all aspects of energy generation, translation, intracellular transport, and, and nucleic acid synthesis. So uh, when I, my lab identified the cell receptor for poliovirus in the 1990s, it was one of the first virus receptors to be identified. In 1990s, it took that long to identify receptors. But in all the years of virology preceding that, many laboratories worked to understand how viruses interacted with cells inside of the cell because that's what the technology permitted. So, for example, the synthesis of protein, uh, the production of nucleic acids, assembly processes, and so forth. Uh, but then with the, with the advent of being able to identify receptors now, when a new virus emerges, SARS-1, MERS coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, immediately the first thing that is done is to identify the receptor. And that's no doubt important, but it's mistaken. It is, is, a, is a misplacing of focus to assume that that is all that you need for infection. And, and it reminds me of a paper that came out very early <laughs> during the pandemic it was a purely computational biological approach where the authors took uh, the spike protein and, and particularly the receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2 and they asked, if you look at ACE2, the receptor, the cell receptor of, of different animal species, which animal is the most likely to be infected simply by looking at the interface? <laughs> and so on the list, the, one of the animals very low down on the list, which they didn't think could be infected, were deer and mink, and we know that they are very nicely infected. So just looking at the receptor itself doesn't tell you anything. Now, if you want to know what happens inside a cell, and this is very important because not only innate immune responses occur with inside the cell, but all the viral processes that you need. This is very hard to do uh, in, in the context of a pandemic. It's, it's almost impossible to do in an animal model. It's impossible to do in humans. The only thing you can do is do it in cell culture. And you know, these are, these are biosafety level three viruses. So not everyone has a BSL-3 laboratory to do them. And so there's a big scarcity of experiments that address what you asked about, about what happens inside the cell, how that impacts, uh, you know, spillover potential. When we look at viruses now in bats, say, and we ask, do they have pandemic potential? All we do is look at whether they can bind to the cell and get in and then replicate. And we don't know any of the components outside of the receptor that, that mediates that. And in fact, you know, what governs it, the ability of a virus to spread in a human population, you can't get at that at all in a cell culture. So there's a real dearth of an ability to address uh, what happens beyond the receptor. Well, of course, the innate response is key, right? It's if you If you can get past it, you have a good chance of establishing at least some uh, replication in the host. And so it's it's crucial. Uh, and so we understand now that uh, the innate immune response actually is the main determinant of whether you get asymptomatic COVID or serious disease. If you have a poor uh, innate response, in particular, if you have antibodies to your own interferons, that correlates with uh, getting severe disease. So, I mean, there are many requirements for a successful spillover and establishment in humans. And one of them for certain is the ability to overcome uh, the innate response because it kicks in so quickly, right, within minutes to hours after infection, and the innate response comprising largely interferons and interferon-induced proteins has an enormous capacity to eliminate the initial reproduction, and so the virus isn't going to go anywhere. And so, uh, yes, you would have to have a an evasion mechanism that works uh, in uh, in human cells, and it could very well be that 
you know, zoonotic pathogens, which come from animal reservoirs, typically where the virus is well adapted to the host, is well adapted because it creates uh, these kinds of proteins that that block innate responses, and then when those viruses get get into humans, that that enables them to uh, establish themselves. It's very difficult to get an in, an idea of um, where the pockets of viruses are. But, you know, at the moment, we do so little surveillance. We know, for example, that bats are an important reservoir. I would say bats and rodents are two very important reservoirs, which constitute together most uh, mammalian species on, on planet Earth. So that's where we should be uh, looking. We have hardly any knowledge of viruses present in mice and, and the same with viruses present in bats. And so I think very targeted surveillance would help us to understand, you know, what viruses are present in what bat populations. And uh, and I think even more importantly than virus surveillance, or what should at least be done at the same time, is to understand the perturbations that humans do that lead to zoonoses. Bats don't typically interact with people unless we force them to. For example, we go into their caves and collect bat guano, or we deforest and force the bats to go elsewhere for food and, and consequently interact with people. And uh, a study, I was just at a bat meeting, which is why I'm, I'm very aware of this. And if you look at the ecology, you get a lot of hints as to uh, what we're doing and, and how to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, if you do surveillance, often you're a bit too late because you're surveilling after the fact. But if you can prevent uh, the incursions, the anthropogenic incursions to begin with, I think that that is more efficient than trying to understand wh where all the viruses are and the ones that are um, going to be a threat. Because in the end, you know, the pandemics are very rare. The spillovers that lead to pandemics are really rare. And so almost impossible to predict ahead of time. Yeah, that's that's a, usually a discussion I have with people when they're when they're making wilder claims about the origin of the pandemic that this or that sequence motif is rare and we all know usually which one they're talking about um, yeah. and and uh, and I usually tell them yeah remember the last global shutdown because of a viral pandemic that you went through this didn't happen and so there's no. a, whatever happened uh, doesn't happen very often no um, one one aspect also here that um, that in this review, since you mentioned surveillance and and, pertur and perturbations of the environment, um, obviously this is not in the case of COVID nineteen. But uh, when they're discussing the, the the Ebola outbreaks, it was very surprising that to see that in the in the Makona outbreak there were no sequences early on uh, from from mm -hmm. very until very late into into the outbreak, so that we've missed. A giant opportunity to understand what was going on there. Um, do you, that was in 2014, 2015. Do you think the situation has improved? Well, I think we had the capacity to do it in, in, in 2014. The problem was it took three months for us to recognize that that was an Ebola outbreak, right? It was in countries where it never, we'd never had any Ebola before. So people were not used to seeing it, and it was thought to be some other disease. Many people thought it might be malaria, for example. So I think there was that was the delay in uh, in getting sequences because no one realized it. And then when they finally did, it was very late and there were already many, many uh, human cases. And that's in part why it spread so extensively. But then immediately afterwards, many countries established sequencing capabilities there. And those countries, they also exported many samples as well, of course. But the technology was uh, present, as you know, because later in the epi in the outbreak, we had uh, many sequences generated. Um, so I think it's just that we didn't realize it. But certainly, it's gotten better even today in, in 2020. Uh, all, all sorts of better technology and computational approaches as well, but could have been done back then. And one, one last point from... From the manuscript, which has been also raised uh, by by others, is a possibility of the possibility of establishing uh, local endemic strains that don't provide immunity to each other, so that the the the, um, the 
that so that uh, SARS-CoV-2, let's say, would perpetuate itself more or less indefinitely by having local isolates where we don't see effective immunity across strains, which is somewhat what we see now globally with Omicron versus previous strains. But this scenario of multiple focal strains, do you think it's likely? I think in in our connected world, it's highly unlikely, right? Most places are connected to the rest of the world. And you can see that because when variants emerge, when we first detect them in any particular country, eventually we find them everywhere else, especially if they're very fit, right? And they can compete uh, with ancestral strains. So uh, I think early uh, in the outbreak, there might have been areas in various countries that were spared because they weren't as well connected as major metropolitan cities, for example, right? The viruses initially traveled to major cities. Uh, but eventually, even those smaller places uh, got virus. And um, that's because everybody travels everywhere and there's uh, huge air travel and so forth. So, well, I think that may have been um, something we saw many years ago. I, I don't think in, in our connected world that that's going to happen any longer. I asked Dr. Racanello his views on the possibilities and limitations of using a comparative approach to understand the evolution of molecular adaptations during a viral epidemic. Well, I, I direct you to a sentence that uh, they have at the end. It is uh, They're talking about um, influenza virus infections. They say, uh, so, so the idea here is that you have a virus coming from an animal and going into people and causing the pandemic. And then if you have that first virus, then you can compare all the subsequent isolates in people and see what's changing and get some idea about what is driving transmission, pathogenesis, immune evasion, and so forth. And what they say is, we don't have that. We don't have, for most outbreaks, the virus at the beginning and in the middle and at the end. We don't have it for SARS-CoV-2, right? We have some early human isolates, but we don't have the first, and we certainly don't have the virus that was in animals just before it came into people. And they write, this makes it impossible to uncover many adaptations to human hosts from the comparative genomics of viruses alone. So you cannot just look at uh, the genome sequence and figure out what's going on. And I would argue that just looking at the genome, even if you have the bat virus, the first human isolate, and then many more after, that won't answer the questions about uh, what is changing to drive the pandemic. And the reason is sometimes changes just occur randomly. For example, uh, they call it founder effect. A change is in the right place at the right time at the beginning of a chain of infection, so it gets propagated along. It doesn't have any functional consequence. So how do you figure that out? In humans, it's impossible because you can't infect people. You can't do challenge experiments, especially with virulent viruses. So you depend on cells in culture and animal models. And they're all models for what happens in people. So you may get some ideas, but you can never prove that a particular mutation uh, does something in people. And an example is you know, changes in SARS-CoV-2 that increase receptor binding, right? You can show in cells and culture that they increase receptor binding, but you don't know if that increase has anything to do with the properties that you see in people. You could use an animal model, but they're not often right. Uh, so th this is a twofold problem. One is that we don't have the beginning and the middle and the end isolates for most viruses, but even if we did, uh, we can't really answer the questions at least in a convincing way. And and I think it, from this review, the only virus for which we have really good uh, convincing information about the changes uh, that occur and how they relate to human disease in a general way is HIV-1 because we have isolates from uh, old world monkeys. We have isolates from chimpanzees and humans, and we can see what has happened. And they do a very nice job of describing, you know, the antagonism of restriction factors that had to occur for, for that virus to become success, successful. So despite, you know, all the data we have and all the information on individual mutations and, and their consequences in animals and in cell culture, I think uh, understanding 
how they contribute to the human pandemic is going to be always an association. It's never going to be that complete proof that we like to have in science. To read Molecular Adaptations During Viral Epidemics by Eugene Koonin, Nash Rockman, and their co-author, Yuri Wolf, go to the Emble Reports website. You can also follow them on Twitter at EvoGenome. To listen to Vincent Racaniello's long-running hit podcast, This Week in Virology, go to microbe.tv or to his YouTube channel. Thank you for listening to the Embo Podcast.